Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's message, that it draws you closer to Jesus and helps you become more like him. Then God said, let us make man in our image. According to our likeness, they will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. God also said, Look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant on the surface, you on the surface of the entire earth, and every tree whose fruit contains seed. This will be food for you for all the wildlife of the earth, and for every bird of the sky, and for every creature that crawls on the earth, everything having breath of life in it, having the breath of life in it, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good indeed. Evening came, and then morning, the sixth day. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Thank you, Terry. Ah, so, so here, here we, we are. are. We are in uh, the sixth day of creation. So the last time I preached a couple weeks ago, uh, we covered these first days of creation, um, and now we're we're honing in on this particular final day of creation of the creative work of God. And as we've been going through this, I've been telling you that. One of the purposes, if not the main purpose, for these first chapters of Genesis uh, is to teach the people of God their history so that they know who they are, so they're rooted and anchored in who their God is and who they are in relation to God. We call this process catechesis. Within the church, we call this uh, catechesis, where we're trained in who God is and who we are in relation to, to him. And so, and so Genesis, Genesis serves as a kind of catechism for the people of God, to let them know who he is and who they are. And the reason that the people of God needed this catechism, the reason they needed this training and teaching is because they had been living in a pagan world, in a pagan culture and pagan environment for 400 years. They'd been living among the Egyptians as slaves to the Egyptians. And as they left Egypt in the Exodus, this is Way, way, way back when Moses is leading the people of God and they're enslaved in Egypt and he's leading them out, they've been in contact with all of these other cultures and other religions. And in this time and place, in this day, you know, today we make a distinction between culture and religion fairly often. And we think that they're both kind of, pro- that culture, religion is kind of a private personal matter and that culture is something that we share in common and that, that kind of shapes us all. In this day, that that didn't exist. Your religion was your culture, was your life. It shaped everything that you were individually and communally. I actually, we've done wrong to make religion a private, personal-only matter. It's not. It's personal, but it's never private. It has communal implications, and it's something that we engage as a community, as a family of God. Back in this day, your religion, your culture, all of those things, none of those were private individual matters. They were community matters. 
And so the people of God had been living among pagan cultures with different, cult, with different religious ideas. And a lot of these pagan religions were teaching that people were created to be the servants of the gods. And that the gods were these capricious, flighty, not very kind beings. And that they had, they ruled over people and that your primary job as a human being was to appease these gods so that they would make sure that they blessed you and gave you what you needed. Can you imagine living in a world where you believe that absolutely everything in the world was tied to some God who may or may not bless you, may or may not give you what you need, and that your role is to serve those gods and to appease them and to do whatever they ask of you so that they'll give you what you want? Can you imagine living in a world where you think that, that all of the gods that are out there are not really on your side and you've got to do all this stuff to make sure they're pleased and appeased so that they'll give you what you need, so that they'll bring the rain that brings the crops, so that they'll bless the work of your hands. Can you imagine that? Quite honestly, most Christians live in that world today. Most Christians, most people think of God, the God of the Bible, the Hebrew God, the Christian God, in exactly those terms. It's a one-to-one, I give and I get. I have to appease God by giving him my service, and God then blesses me. And that is 180 degrees from the Christian view of God and from the view of God right here in Genesis. This view of God that, is, that, is, that we find here in the creation of humanity is exactly opposite of that. In fact, one of the reasons for sharing this creation of humanity and, and the command that God gives them to fill the earth is to counter all of the pagan narratives that said, you've got to make sacrifices and serve the gods and appease them so that they'll give you what you need. Because the gods are capricious and you don't always know if they're on your side. This, this narrative right here, this picture right here, this story counters that completely totally upends that understanding. So these Hebrew people who have been living in Egypt in slavery, who have been, been in contact with all of these different religious ideas that were telling them, the gods made you in spite, the gods made you to be their servants, your job is to appease them, and maybe, just maybe, if they're happy enough with you, they'll give you what you want. This text comes in and says, no, 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 that's not who you are. That's not who your God is. That's not what God wants for you or from you. And so we jump in now to this story of the creation of humanity. And we read right at the beginning that God said, let us make humankind. I know our version here says man, but the Hebrew word really means humanity. Let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created humankind in his own image. He created them in the image of God. He created them male and female. Now, this is revolutionary. Probably isn't to you. It's probably not to us. 
but to, to the, the Hebrews and to the people around them who heard this for the first time, this is totally revolutionary. Because what the scripture is telling you, what Moses was telling the people of God when he's sharing this truth with them, is that this world is not ruled over by a bunch of capricious gods who may or may not be on your side. You were made to rule over this world. You are the ones that God empowered to rule over the earth, not some deities that you have to appease with your sacrifice and service. You are the ones made in the image of God. In fact, the word for image here is the same word that's used for idol all throughout the Bible. And an idol, as we know, is an image of a God that you worship, right? It's, it's a representation of a God. And so back in these days, People would make these graven images and they would worship them. Now, people were not so stupid as to believe that the thing that they made with their hands was the actual God. What they thought was, we're making an image of a God that exists out there. And if we make that image and we worship that God, then that God who exists out there will come and indwell this image and will bless us. They'll put their presence in this image. They will be, this will be the image of the God that we're worshiping. That's what an idol was. It was an image of an invisible God. And the Bible comes in and says, no, 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 no. You don't need idols because those gods don't exist. You don't need idols to worship. You are the very icons of God. You are the image of God. It is God who dwells in you. It is God who has made you to be his image in the world. Don't, you no need to worship idols or to try to appease these golden images that you've made because you are the image of God. This is revolutionary to people because there's grace from the beginning. There's grace right from the beginning. When the Bible says you are created in the image of God, what it means is God is on your side from day one. You don't have to do anything to try to appease God. You don't have to do anything to try and please God for God to be on your side. God is already on your side. From the moment you take your first breath, from the moment you are conceived in your womb, God is on your side. And he'll never not be on your side. This is radical. It's amazing because it counters not only the pagan narratives that the Hebrews were hearing, but even the Christian narratives that a lot of us grew up with. That says, if you don't serve God in exactly these ways, God is against you. That if you don't appease God in exactly these ways, then God is opposed to you. It counters the very Christianized narrative that a lot of us grew up with, which is really just the old pagan narrative repackaged with Jesus on the cover. When the biblical story is that God has always been on your side. God has always been for you. God made you in his image to image him, to be his icon on the world, in the world, to look like him, to act like him, to be like him, to do as he does. That's the narrative. Now, what does this even mean that we're made in the image of God? I already alluded a little bit that 
that in this ancient world, the language that's used here is, is that humans are essentially the idols of God, just like idols of other gods were something that you would worship. We are the image of God in the world. But what exactly does that mean? You can read 10 different theologians and get 10 different answers to this. And here's the thing, I think they're all mostly right. Some people will say that the image of God in us is our ability to, to think and to communicate in ways that other creatures and animals can't. It's our ability to feel in ways that other creatures can't. It's our ability to connect with one another and with God in ways that other creatures can't and don't. Some will say it's a role that we play. That to be in the image of God is to act like God in the world, and that means to rule over creation and to be in community with one another as God is community within himself. And I think they're all right. The image of God in humanity cannot be boiled down to one thing. It cannot be boiled down to one quality or one characteristic. The fact that you and I are made in the image of God means both something internal and something external. It's the internal qualities that make us reflect our creator in the world. It's the interior qualities that allow us to be homes for God's Holy Spirit. And it's the external things that we do that are like God. It's the way that we care for creation. It's the way that we care for and live with one another. It's the way that we express God's will in the world. The image of God means far more than we could ever say. And it's both definable and incredibly mysterious. You'll find that with a lot of biblical doctrines, where we can put a sort of definition on it, but at the end of the day, it's so beyond our comprehension that we can't really grasp it. If you ever think, you know what, I've got this image of God thing down, like I know exactly what it means, you're wrong. Just like with the Trinity. If you're ever like, I got the Trinity, I know exactly what the Trinity means. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I know exactly how it works. I got it all. I've studied the scripture and I've, I've got it figured out. You don't. There's a mystery to these doctrines of God that has to be there. Because the moment that we have a God who is fully definable by our finite human minds, we have a God that we have created, not the one who actually if we can't fully understand another human being, it's not possible to fully understand the God who created us. And we have to embrace the mystery. And so this image of God is something that we can, we can begin to put our finger on and we can kind of, we can get there. But there's a mystery to it that's not entirely definable. There's something intangible beyond what we can put words on to this. And that makes you and me and every single person you've ever laid your eyes on of incalculable work. I don't, I don't know if you know this. I don't know if we grasp this. I don't, I don't know if you've held on to this. But you, as you are right now, are of incalculable worth to God and to his church. No one can put a price on you. No one can put a standard of value on you. You are of immeasurable value. You, wherever you are, wherever you are in life, 
Whoever you have been and whoever you are trying to become, whatever you have done and whatever you will do, as you are, made in the image of God, you are of immeasurable value and worth. You need to know that. To these people who Moses was talking to, they didn't have that view before this. They had been told that they were built to be peon servants of deities who may hate them. They were told that they were created out of conflict. That they were byproducts of the wars of the gods. And here, the God of the universe, the creator, brokenhearted over the internalized messages that his people had held on to over their years in slavery, comes and says, No! No matter what anyone has told you, no matter what anyone has said about you, you are of the greatest value. I made you to be like me. Forget what they say. Forget what they've told you. Forget whatever internalized messages you've held on to that tell you you're less than and you're not valuable. God says, I made you to be like me, and you could not be more valuable. Hold on to He tells you this from the first page and never stops telling you that through all of his word. And if we as a church have ever done anything that makes someone feel less valuable, that makes someone feel put down, that makes someone feel as though they are less than in any way, then we have violated the very scriptures that we say we uphold. And we must repent and turn from that. And so this first, this act of creation of humanity, this first declaration over people, you are made in the image of God. You share qualities that only God has. And you are given a mission that only God could give. You are made to reflect Him in the world. And so we then move on and we see the contents of that mission that we have. So flowing from this image of God, flowing from the fact that we are created in the image of God to be like God, God then gives us a mission. First, He gives us one another. And this is, this is such a beautiful thing. We read that God created humankind in His own likeness, and then specifically God created male and female. In his likeness. And once again, we live in a world that has told certain people you're less than and you're less valuable than because of your chromosomes, because of your gender, because of the people you were born to. For whatever reason, for whatever circumstances, we live in a world that has communicated that certain people are more valuable than others. And here, in a time and place when Women were not on the same standing as men in almost any way. In a time and place when the culture and the world around the Hebrew people who are learning this said that men are created and then there's women and women can be their property and women can be their servants and women are there to give to men and to serve men that they're second class. Here we have the Hebrew scriptures coming and saying, no, 
Men and women, you are both created equally in the image of God. And we cannot adequately image God if we are not in this together as men and women. One of the beautiful things that, that comes back on this is that God is not fully imaged on the earth unless both men and women are engaged in it. Which means that God is not male. And God is not female. But neither is God genderless. God is the full totality of masculinity and femininity. God is not devoid of gender, and God is not one gender. God incorporates and encapsulates everything that it is to be man and woman, to be masculine and feminine. Now, this doesn't mean that those two things are interchangeable. It doesn't mean that we can, we can willy-nilly exchange the male for the female. God created distinct sexes for a reason, to complement one another, to work together, to do the things that only we can do, and when we do them together, to do them well in a way that reflects all of God's character. But it means that being male is not closer to being like God. And being female is not further away from being like God. There was a, there was a heresy in the early church that some of the early church leaders were teaching that said to become like Jesus, you have to become like a man. And so women, you have to become more masculine. That as you get to be more like Jesus, you'll become more masculine because, because Jesus was a man, God is a man, and therefore women must become like men in order to become like God and like Jesus. And thank God that was singled out and rejected as a heresy. But that idea has not fully gone away. There are corners of the church that would say, yes, men and women qualitatively are equal in the eyes of God, and yet men have some special access to God or some special role or function where God speaks more clearly through them than through women. And that's hogwash. We need men and women partnered together, bringing all that we have and all that we can only bring as ourselves in order to fully image God in the world, in order to fully bring his mission and to go on his mission together. And so men and women, we are created to partner in this thing equally. Walking this road doing what God has commanded. And so God created male and female to image him because God is the fullness of masculinity and femininity and has to have us working in tandem, in partnership, in order to be fully imaged in the world. And then God gives a command. He says, I built you for intimate relationship with one another and with me to image me in the world. And so now, outflowing from that, here is your mission. Here's what you are to do, human beings. I want you to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So at this point in Genesis, here's how you have to imagine things. There's, there's the Garden of Eden, and it is this beautiful, not manicured, but like, like the wild beauty. We, we were in Hawaii last week, and we went to this macadamia nut farm. And I remember I parked the car, and I'm just looking out there. Nothing's landscaped where this is, right? And it is just fabulously gorgeous. I mean, amazing. Right? We're looking out at the trees and the flora and just all of the plants and the flowers and the beautiful things. And no, that nobody cultivated this. 
Nobody, nobody, nobody did, did. This, this is, is the, the work, work of God. God. This, this is, is nature, nature at its finest. finest. And, and I, I, I parked the car, car and I stood outside the car for a minute and my family's like ready to go in the store. And I was like, this isn't a garden. This is just how it is. Can you imagine? Like looking out your door and this is what it is. And that's how I imagine the Garden of Eden. It doesn't need to be manicured. It doesn't need to be tended and, and cultivated. God says to his people, I want you to tend the earth. I want you to care for this place. And then I want you to spread it. So what you have to imagine then is that Eden is this beautiful garden space that God has created. Wild in its beauty and yet tended by humanity. And the rest of the world is this kind of dark void. And the mission of humanity was to tend this garden and to expand it and grow it out till it covered the whole world. That was the original mission. It wasn't just to tend for this little space that existed. It was to expand that beauty to the entire world. That was what God called his people too. And so the human beings, because they're made in the image of God, they're meant to tend the creatures that God had made and to tend the plants that God had raised up and to spread the beauty of the garden out across this chaotic world. That's always been the mission of God. To spread God's beauty and order into a world of chaos. And as these people are traveling from Egypt and they're learning about their history and they're going into the land of Canaan and they're going to settle there and they're going to create this nation of Israel that God has called them to create, they need to know that their mission as God's people is to expand the beauty and order of God's creation into the dark places of the world. That's what their mission is. And so they're being taught Look, when we go into Canaan, as we travel through the desert and as we wander here, people, your mission as God's nation is to bring his beauty and his light and his order to the dark and chaotic spaces of the world. They were going into enemy territory. They were going into chaotic places that were ruled over by warring tribes. And God is letting them know that your mission is to bring my order, and to bring my life into that darkness, into that chaos. And today our mission is no different. Church, our mission is not to sow discord, is not to be angry and outraged all the time. Our mission is to bring the light and beauty and order of God's good reign into a chaotic and dark world. That's why the church exists. That's what the kingdom of God is. The kingdom of God, like Eden, begins as this small little seed, this little group of 12 disciples of Jesus, and then grows and expands. And that's why Jesus can say, go from Jerusalem to, and Judea to Samaria, and then the ends of the earth. Jesus is telling his disciples at the end of his life, just like God told the people at the beginning of the scriptures, I want you to take this garden, I want you to take the beauty of this community and I want you to spread it and expand it throughout the entire world. That was the mission of God's people. And so God looks upon his first human beings, male and female that he created, 
And God, God looks, looks upon, upon the created, created order. And he, he looks, looks at the mission that he has given his people. God says, it's so good. It's very good. And he repeated It's so very good. It is perfect as it is. Now, I want you to notice one more thing. These people who were created were not created just to enjoy the presence of God and just to selfishly hog his presence and enjoy the beauty of the garden. There was work to be done from the beginning. No sin had entered the world at this point, and yet there was chaos. There was disorder that needed ordering, that needed God's beauty spread. God gave his people work from the beginning. He gave them a mission from the beginning. He gave them purpose and something to do with their hands and their lives. They, he gave them an outflow for his relationship with them because all healthy relationships multiply. Every healthy relationship multiplies. Every healthy marriage multiplies naturally. You can stop it from multiplying, but naturally it multiplies. Every healthy marriage multiplies. Every healthy friendship multiplies in love and in invitation to others. Every healthy family, every healthy church, every healthy plant, every healthy animal. Nature multiplies. It is what we do. It is why we were created and why God had to give his people a mission before there was ever sin in the world. There had to be an outlet for this multiplication. There had to be an outlet for this growth, somewhere for it to go. Because God's presence and God's pleasure and God's enjoyment were never meant to be hogged and selfishly hoarded to us. They were meant to go out from us, to spread out into the world. Even before there's any sin, even before there's anything wrong, God recognizes, look, these people can't just hog everything to themselves. They have to spread it. They have to multiply because you can't be in the image of God and not multiply. God expands, God gives. His very nature is of a giver, of a multiplier. That's why God's love overflows in creation. And so does ours. And so people are given the mission of multiplication, of spreading out because God recognizes when we are in intimate community with him and with one another, if we are healthy, multiplication will happen. We can't stop it. And that's why God creates people. To love and be loved. To share his love. To care for the creation that he has made. And to spread his beauty and his good work. This is your purpose. This is the purpose of every human being who has ever lived, whether they know it or not. Our mission as a church is to help people discover that purpose. Discover the purpose of being conduits for the love and presence and beauty and light of God in a dark and chaotic world. And this is why in Matthew 28, Jesus, after he has been raised from the dead, meets his disciples in Galilee, and he gives them this charge. He gives them this commandment. In verse 18, Matthew 28, 18, Jesus came near and said to them, 
All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. When Jesus comes the first time, and he calls to himself these 12 apostles who are the fathers of the kingdom of God, just like the 12 fathers of Israel way back when. Jesus calls these 12 together to be the patriarchs of the kingdom that he has come to inaugurate and to bring about. He's not just creating, he's not creating a new religion. He's not here to create some new system. He's here to reorder all of creation. The gospel of Jesus does not just apply to the forgiveness of individual human hearts. The gospel of Jesus is about totally recreating the entire world as God intended it from the beginning. Jesus is renewing that mission from Genesis chapter 1 that God gave to those first people. Jesus is rephrasing and renewing that mission for the people of his kingdom. And he's telling them, just like the first people were told, I want you to go out and multiply. Be fruitful and multiply. Make disciples who will go and teach other people to follow me, to obey my commands, to love one another as I have loved you, to follow me, to be my people. Jesus comes and he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to who? Himself. Jesus is saying, I am God. I hold all authority. And just as God back in Genesis told the first people, I want you to go and multiply this garden and spread it throughout the world, Jesus is saying to his followers now, I want you to take this community that we have, this beautiful family that we've built, men and women together following me and working and spreading this gospel and spreading this kingdom, I want you to take what we have here and spread it everywhere. I want you to take my message of my kingdom into all of the dark and chaotic spaces of the world and bring my beauty and order to them. That's the Christian mission. That's the Christian message. Jesus comes and declares to us on a cross and through an empty tomb, you are of more value and worth than you could possibly ever have imagined. And when you follow me, your mission is simply to multiply. And like all healthy things, healthy disciples multiply. Healthy disciples multiply their discipleship. They multiply in new disciples and more people following Jesus. It's what we do. We are healthy followers of Jesus. We're healthy disciples of Jesus. Do you realize that everybody on the earth is an evangelist? Every single, have you ever known a person who didn't get excited about something and wanted you to get excited about it too? They're the dullest person in the world if you haven't. Everybody in the world gets excited about something. And when they do get really excited about something, they want you to be as excited as they are. Just as an aside, one hint, if you want to love people really well, find out what excites them and get excited about it, whether you care or not. That's the way you make friends and love people. 
But everybody gets excited about something. Everybody's an evangelist for something. We're all trying to share the good news of something. I will share the good news of the North Shore of Oahu, which is gorgeous and amazing. And if you can go, go there. And if you're not privileged enough to be able to go there, I'm sorry. Let me help you go there. Like, let's, let's figure out how to get you to Hawaii. Um, we'll all be evangelists for something. We all get excited about something. We all want to share something. And we want other people to get excited about it too. People are naturally evangelistic. People are naturally multipliers of the things they're excited about. And what Jesus is saying here, I think it's a command. It's something that we must obey. But it's also something that if we're really excited about Jesus and we follow him and we're a real disciple of him, will happen because it's what humans do. Because multiplying what we're excited about, what we love, is who we are. It's built into that image of God in which we were made. Healthy disciples multiply disciples because they're excited about Jesus and because they believe this is absolutely the best way of life that there could be and because we look forward to a hope that we know exists nowhere else except through Jesus Christ and we want everyone to live into and know and grasp onto that hope. It's who we will be if we follow Jesus. And so, I don't want to lay another burden on because that's what those pagan religions did. I don't want to lay a burden on you that says you have to do this, 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 and this for God to accept you and love you, for God to be on your side. I want to drive home that message that God is already on your side. And I don't want to lay a burden on you that says, hey, you've got to go and you've got to share the gospel with 15 people this week or you're falling short. Because that's not true either. The fact is that those who are with Jesus and love being with Jesus will draw other people into relationship with And so there, there's one mission today. There's one mission. As people who are loved by God, who are valued by God, who are of incalculable worth and value, being made in the image of God, I want to put Jesus And I want to call us all with him, to fall more deeply in love with him. It does no good trying to obey God, trying to obey Jesus if we aren't in love with him. And if we are in love with him, then it won't be a struggle to obey him. I want to put Jesus It's time, church, that we lean hard with Jesus, with one another, with him individually, privately, in our quiet life. The time that we lean hard is just being with Jesus, owning who he says we are through his cross and his resurrection, owning who he says we are as we are created in the image of God, and pursuing love of Jesus. Praying to him, talking with him, reading his word, being with his people, falling more deeply in love with him every day, so that we own who we are as Christians, so that we get excited about him, and that that joy and excitement will spread out from us 
was it a burden for those first people to spread the garden? Joy. For followers of Jesus, if we find sharing the gospel of Jesus is work because we've not enjoyed him, because we're not spending time with him and falling deeply in love with him, we're creating the rules for ourselves. We're falling back into that practice, trying to appease a God we're not sure is on our side. But as we fall more deeply in we won't be able to help share joy and the life, the love he has. Friend, God, it's been a long one. Wake us up, Lord. On this dreary day, wake us up. Wake us up to your presence, Holy Spirit. Wake us up to who you are. Wake us up to your eminence in our lives, that you are present, you are here, you are always with us. Jesus, remind us that you are on our side, that the cross and the empty tomb and your ongoing intercession for us before the throne of God declares that you are on our side. Help us to hold our own dignity and value and worth to uphold that in other people. And Lord, to fall deeply in love with you every day of our lives, to fall more in love with you tomorrow than we are today, to grow in our joy in knowing you, so that, Lord, we can't help but spread the good news of Jesus with everyone around us. Help us to become more faithful disciples who are with you in all things who hold tightly to that declaration that you have all authority, heaven and on earth. Thank you, Jesus, for all you have done for us. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for working within us to renew us. Thank you, God, for not heaving heavy burdens upon us, but Jesus for saying, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. May we walk from this place today renewed in our love and our joy in you, Jesus. We pursue you with our love. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning into the podcast this week. For more information on Christ Community Church in Southeast Denver, visit ChristCommunityDenver.org.